Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary, from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune into Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. Soundington Media! For seven days and seven nights we sailed the air, and on the eighth day we saw a great country in it, resembling an island, bright and round and shining with a great light. Running in there and anchoring, we went ashore, and on investigating, found that the land was inhabited and cultivated. By day, nothing was in sight from the place, but as night came on, we began to see many other islands hard by, some larger, some smaller, and they were like fire in color. We also saw another country below, with cities in it, and rivers, and seas, and forests, and mountains. This we inferred to be our own world. We determined to go still further inland, but we met what they call the vulture dragons and were arrested. These are men riding on large vultures and using the birds for horses. The vultures are large and for the most part have three heads. You can judge their size from the fact that the mast of a large merchantman is not so long or so thick as the smallest of the quills they have. The vulture dragons are commissioned to fly about the country and bring before the king any stranger they may find. So, of course, they arrested us and brought us before him. So begin the adventures of Lucian of Samoseta on the Moon. Raised in the present-day country of Turkey in the early 100s AD, Lucian wrote these words in a novel he called A True Story a novel which is widely thought of as the first science fiction work about aliens in the Western world. Across almost 2,000 years, and many, many stories, experiments, and conspiracy theories later, our ideas about aliens have changed. So how did we get from vulture dragons to little gray men? I'm Elise Parisian, and we'll talk about all things extraterrestrial on this special two-part episode of Unspookable. I think that an alien is a creature that could be on another planet or floating around in space. Aliens are creatures from outer space that are, their bodies look like us, like their shape is like us, but they have like big eyes and they're green and they fly in like flying ships. To me, an alien is a human-like creature, but with a different body color, as in, like, a purple or a green or something like that. And I picture it being, like, a really skinny figure and, like, a huge head and just black eyes. 
that only live on other planets. When I think of an alien, I think of kind of a teardrop flipped upside down when I think of its head and then um, eyes that are kind of shaped like eggs and then a tiny little line for a smile. Think about the last time you saw an alien. Was it in a book? Maybe a comic book or a graphic novel? Watching a show or a movie? What did it look like? Now think about how this image that someone else created measures up to what you believe a being from another planet might look like. What possibilities come to mind? What kind of bodies do the creatures have? How do they communicate? Do they speak? Do they eat? Do they travel? How do they live together? When we start asking all these questions, the possibilities for how life might look on other planets are really endless, bound only by our imaginations. Like with many things we explore on Unspookable, it's impossible to say exactly when the idea of aliens first occurred to humans on Earth. It was likely before the written word made a record of those thoughts possible. It could be that we've been thinking about aliens for as long as we understood the concept of Earth itself. That we are but one planet in a vast, many would say infinite, universe. People have been asking, what's out there, beyond the space that we can conceive of, for thousands of years, regardless of recorded history? The written word is only one small way that knowledge is passed between human beings. Stories told from body to body, mouth to ear, have probably contained records of what humans believe is possible in space for much longer than we've been able to write. To look at the beginning of written history, though, the story that Lucian of Samoseta tells as true says a lot about where the human imagination around aliens began. Lucian was an immensely popular writer in his time, especially because of his sassy, sarcastic style. He wrote a true story as a parody, or way to poke fun at the tales of epic battles and great journeys with supernatural elements that many writers of his time passed off as true. Stories where gods and goddesses appeared in human form, where monsters and magic influenced the outcome of regular human interactions. These types of stories started with the popularity of Homer's The Odyssey and The Iliad, which contained these fantastical elements, but were told as true history. It's interesting to see that the most outlandish thing Lucian could think of to try and insist was true was a journey to the moon where the people rode dragon vultures. As the story goes on, Lucian encounters a war between the inhabitants of the moon and the sun. Birds made of grass with wings of leaves, fleas the size of elephants, and humanoid beings that sweat milk. But though this particular story was a parody, many thinkers in other corners of the globe were considering alien life more seriously. Though they may not have had the scientific means to describe why it was possible, people have understood for a long time that it is unlikely that Earth is unique in its ability to support life. 
there are probably many other worlds where anything from microorganisms to intelligent life forms exist. This idea, known in fancy terms as cosmic pluralism, exists in philosophical and religious texts all over the world, from the ancient Indian religion of Jainism, which discusses the plurality of the universe, to the medieval Muslim astrological scholarship, which often bases the belief in other worlds on the teaching of the Quran, the central religious text of Islam. As our means to study the stars became more complex, so too did our belief in what life forms space could support. After constructing a telescope in 1774, German astronomer William Herschel began publishing catalogs of nebula, or interstellar clouds of dust and gas, in clusters of stars. Herschel is credited as being the first European person to observe and identify Uranus as a planet of our solar system, which he first thought to be a comet among the constellation Gemini. Though many of his publications were well-respected, Herschel's writing sometimes took a, well, fantastical turn. He genuinely believed that the Earth's moon might have parts of its surface covered in foliage like the English countryside, that Mars was likely inhabited as well, and that it was possible that the interior of the sun held advanced life forms. In a paper presented to the Royal Society, Herschel writes, The sun appears to be nothing else than a very eminent, large, and lucid planet. Its similarity to the other globes of the solar system lead us to suppose that it is most probably inhabited, like the rest of the planets, with beings whose organs are adapted to the peculiar circumstances of that vast globe. How does that sound to us now? The thought that the sun could have beings alive at its core, which we now believe to measure a temperature of 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, or 15 million degrees Celsius, might seem preposterous. But Herschel was respected as a scientist by many in his day, even if they did not believe in life forms on other planets. In these earlier days of mapping the universe, the fear and awe that discoveries we now take for granted, such as the existence of planets like Uranus and Neptune, or of spots on the sun, might have made anyone think that if those things could be real, then why couldn't life in the middle of a giant star also be real? But how do our visions of aliens evolve as our ability to see the stars evolves? More on that when we return. I do believe that aliens exist, but not the, but like, just like tiny little, like one cell organisms that we might call aliens because they are living organisms from outer space. I do think that aliens are real, but not in the way I described before, kind of as a um, character, but more of looking like a narwhal. Like It would most likely be a sea creature that we just haven't learned about yet or that hasn't been discovered, that's most likely what an alien would look like to me. I honestly think that aliens are real because there has been a lot of sightings, and not just that, but there has been some pretty weird things that have gone around in space. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, 
Low-resolution telescopes allowed researchers to observe Mars in more detail than ever before. In 1877, Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli wrote about a network of long, straight lines in the equatorial regions of Mars, which he identified as canals. A canal is, by definition, a human-made structure, used to allow boats to pass between larger bodies of water, or to transport water inland for human use. So the use of the word canal to identify these lines naturally indicated what Schiaparelli and many others believed, that they were created by intelligent life on Mars. As we talk about all the time on Unspookable, the human brain is always ready to fill in details about what we can't necessarily prove through our senses, with all kinds of theories and imaginations. It's not so far-fetched to see how people who had no way to photograph the moon, the sun, Mars, or any other object in space could have seen lines and compared them to structures on Earth created by humans. Back in the early days of telescopes, astronomers had to wait patiently, sometimes for hours, for still air that would allow them to get a clear vision of their focus. Then, without any ability to capture it, except with their memory, the astronomer would draw what they had seen, or what they thought they had seen, to share it with the world. It's normal for the human brain to make connections, establish parallels, and tell stories about what we do think we know in relation to the unknown, as Schiaparelli did with the canals. Our ability for wonder, for awe, and for imagination about the unknown are inextricably linked to our ability to fear the unknown. These neurological processes, which we still know so little about, all work by comparing what we know to what we don't and trying to fill in the gaps. If you heard a meow sound coming from another room but had never before seen a cat, what would you think it was? You might have no way of imagining that because it's likely that you have some picture of what a cat is in your mind. When someone says alien, is it possible for you to picture something that you've never before experienced? Or are the ideas making up your imagination a combination of lots of other sources? Can you imagine what which you have no basis for in your lived experience? In the case of the canals on Mars, scientists saw what they could reasonably conceive of based on their previous experience. Perhaps by now, living in this time, you know that while Mars might harbor some evidence of the very basic building blocks of life as we understand it, there are not any beings there that could make things like canals. The canals, and many of the other earliest observations of the planets by telescope, are actually a type of optical illusion, revealed by more powerful photography and mapping in the mid-1900s. From a distance, planets and large bodies in space can have what we now call albedo features, large areas that show contrast in brightness or darkness, often making them look like topographical features, oceans, mountains, canals, or other formations that we are used to on Earth. 
But in the late 1800s, we could not have predicted what high-resolution photography of space would reveal. So we let our imaginations run wild. 1877 marks the year when the word Martian, used as a noun to describe something on or from Mars, first appears regularly in print. At an 1881 electrical exposition in Paris, many people saw a light bulb for the very first time. One attendee came away so inspired by what the invention of the light bulb meant for the future that they wrote an essay called The Year of Grace 2081. Though the author remained anonymous, the essay was widely circulated, especially because of its speculations about Martians. The writer suggests that at some point, humans will begin telecommunicating with life on Mars. After a brief period passed in the exchange of polite messages, humans will decide to war with the Martians. Humans will unite all their energies for the fabrication of mammoth engines, which will discharge oceans of water, metal, and fire right into the face of Mars. In return, the Martians will pelt them with aeroliths, weighing 3,000 tons, which will chip whole mountains off of the Himalayas and make a big hole where Mont Blanc now exists. Popular culture was soon overrun with ideas about the possibilities not just for life on other planets, but for conflict between those life forms and our own. In 1898, H.G. Wells published the groundbreaking science fiction novel The War of the Worlds, in which a race of octopus-like extraterrestrials invades Earth to escape their home on Mars which is becoming too cold for them to inhabit. Wells writes, Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Perhaps the most famous encounter with H.G. Wells' Martians came in 1938, when actor and director Orson Welles, same name but no relation, created a radio drama with the text of The War of the Worlds, which broadcast as a Halloween special on October 30th. The story was presented as a regular radio program, interrupted by news bulletins about the invasion. This ingenious format is said to have caused panic among some listeners, who believed it to be real. Though some claim that stories of the panic were exaggerated, it's clear that Orson Welles knew how primed we were to respond to this kind of story. Welles was hardly the last person to imagine that humans and aliens would not get along. With the advent of new technologies, came new fears for society as a whole. If humans could build things like tanks and other weapons of war, what could be possible for technologically advanced Martians? Or aliens living an entire solar system or galaxies away? From here, it's not hard to imagine that we easily added more projections in our media of alien encounters gone awry. 
battles over planets, high-speed chases across galaxies, and of course, the ever-present theme of alien abductions. We'll dig into those right after this. I absolutely do not think that aliens would get along with humans because we have all these sources like houses, water, food, grocery stores, and all this variety of things. And if they did live underwater or they did live on another planet, they don't have access to those things. So they would probably be angry that we have these things that they don't. I don't think that aliens and humans would get along But like I said before, how aliens remind me of maybe like fish or narwhals and they'd possibly be in the water. Maybe that relates to people finding mysterious sea creatures or if you're in like a submarine and boats and ships are missing. If the aliens that most people think are real with like structure that are like green i think the the aliens would totally destroy everything and they wouldn't get along well because they would think that we are like evil or something and they would think that because they might see our spaceships and think that they're we are trying to take over everything In the 1890s, local newspapers in the western United States began picking up various stories about what witnesses called phantom or mystery airships. Often appearing around nightfall, and sometimes vanishing into thin air, these airships were described as similar to many dirigibles of the time, like zeppelins or blimps, filled with gas as a means of making them lighter than air and powered by an engine. Sometimes, people claim to have seen the pilot or crew of the ship, almost always humanoid in form, but also described as Martian. The witnesses, comparing what they saw to the type of flying machines they already thought possible, were describing what we now see as an early predecessor of the late 1900s obsession with flying saucers and other unidentified flying objects, or UFOs. The first high-profile alien abduction story came well into the 1900s, when flight technology had changed enough for humans to be able to imagine the large metal contraptions that more of us associate with extraterrestrial aircraft today. On October 16, 1957, 23-year-old Antonio Villas-Boas was working overnight on his farm in southwestern Brazil. Antonio was used to plowing the fields at night to try to avoid the heat of the daytime. But as he rested for a second on this particular night, he saw something peculiar. A red star shone brightly in the distance, appearing to come closer and closer by the second until he could see that It was not a star, but an egg-shaped aircraft with a red light at its front. The craft extended three metal legs into the ground in order to land. And though he tried to flee, four humanoid figures with blue eyes who communicated with each other in yelps and barks seized him and dragged him onto the ship where they covered him in gel 
and took samples of his blood from his chin. Eventually, they released him from the ship, and the craft disappeared into the night. Antonio's story was one of the first modern alien abduction stories to gain widespread popularity in South and North America. Though many claims of UFOs and alien interactions had been made to journalists in the past, this one was widely perceived as true. But why do you think that is? One theory is that people simply felt more able to believe Antonio's story because of their predetermined ideas about who he was. People in larger cities, reading newspaper stories or interviews, and hearing that he was a farmer from a relatively small town, might have automatically assumed that he had no exposure to stories or media that would give him the ideas to make up something like that. But as we know, just because people believe someone to be uneducated or inexperienced doesn't mean it's true. Antonio went on to study law and become a lawyer. Though many doctors theorized that the symptoms reported after the time of his supposed abduction were consistent with low-grade radiation poisoning, he insisted until the day he died in 1991 that his interaction with aliens really happened. Then, in 1961, Betty and Barney Hill, a married couple from New Hampshire, claimed they were driving along an isolated road when they were abducted by aliens who live in the Zeta Reticuli star system, approximately 39.3 light-years from Earth. When they arrived home at dawn, they realized they had been gone all night, and Betty called the U.S. Air Force to explain they had been kidnapped by aliens. Over the next few years, both Betty and Barney would undergo hypnotherapy, to try to relieve themselves of recurring dreams and symptoms they believed were caused by their abduction. Both of them would continue to assert the truth of their encounter for decades afterwards, with Betty even attending weekly UFO vigils, gatherings meant to spot alien aircrafts in the night sky. It was around this time in United States history that widespread reports of the Greys first occurred. Greys, or gray aliens are typically described as humanoid, with enlarged hairless heads, large black eyes, long fingers, and gray skin. Does this sound like a type of alien you've seen or heard of before? Now this description may seem cliched or old-fashioned to us, but the 1950s and 60s were the heyday for these types of aliens. Some journalists argue that as many as 75% of all the reported cases of alien abductions are by greys. But before we get too much further into that, that's a wrap for part one. Think you know where this is going next? Speaking of greys, do the words Roswell or Area 51 ring any bells? Tune into part two of this special alien episode as we try to crack the code on one of the greatest conspiracy theories of all time. Thanks for listening to Unspookable. I'm your host, Elise Parisian. This episode was written by Eleanor Riley Condon, produced and edited by Nate Dufort. Our theme song and additional music composed by Jesse Case. 
Our logo was created by Natalie Kewen. Special thanks this week to our guests Blythe, Bella, and Al. If you enjoy the show, make sure to tell your friends. You can leave us a rating and review in your podcast player of choice, or share an episode on social media. Speaking of social media, you can find Unspookable on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us for a peek behind the scenes and for updates on the show. Unspookable is a production of Soundsington Media, committed to making quality programming for young audiences and the young at heart. For more information on our shows and the people behind them, go to www.soundsingtonmedia.com. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.